Hey, good morning. Hey, my name is Jamie Borchick. I'm part of the teaching team here. And it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, I just got to say, you know, we have an incredible church community, don't we? Like the, the stuff we get to be a part of, the, the, even singing this morning, the musicians up here, but then uh, the stuff going on in the city and to the nations and what Chase is going to be talking about this next week. I mean, just incredible. And so uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning, a joy to have you here. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17 today, 12 through 17. And I actually want to start this morning with a little challenge to you. Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. Johann Sebastian Bach once wrote an entire symphony based on this chapter. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther, he said that if the Bible were a ring, then the book of Romans would be the gemstone in that ring. And Romans 8 would be the radiance, the splendor emanating from that gemstone. And then, a few years ago, Joe Kim, yes, I just put Joe Kim in the same category as Bach and Luther, but Joe Kim uh, challenged our small group, knowing the glory contained in these verses we're walking through right now, Joe challenged our small group to memorize all of Romans 8 during Lent. Y'all, Lent just started this past week, just a few days ago. And so, here's the challenge. What if you committed to memorizing the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8 over the next 40 days leading up to Easter. What if you took that challenge? Now I'm just going to go ahead and forecast that if you took that challenge and you did that, the payoff long term in your life would be a whole lot bigger than giving up chocolate for a few weeks. Okay? So challenge issued. Do with it what you will. All right. Uh, Would you stand with me and read Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, Pray that you would speak to us. Would we hear your voice? Would you give us ears to hear what you would say? Speak to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat. So our text begins with the transitional words, so then. And these words link back to all the awesome stuff that Phil talked about last week in Romans 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ, you are not condemned. No, you are loved by God and you have his Holy Spirit living in you. And in fact, the heading in your Bible, it might, it might sum it up this way. The heading in your Bible, the start of Romans 8, might say something like your new life in the Spirit. Your life in the Spirit. And in the text we just read, what Paul does is he lays out two real life realities of the life we have in the Spirit. Two realities of life in the Spirit. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at these two realities. 
And the first reality that we see in this passage is the debt we owe. The debt we owe. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are, what's that word? Debtors. Now, for some of you, that word debtors makes you feel all kinds of feels. Right? Like debt debt is one of the great problems in our world today. The average American carries nearly $40,000 of personal debt. And that's if you exclude mortgages from the picture. So $40,000 on average of car payments, student loans, medical bills, credit card bills. And for many of us, that debt is like a ball and chain that we carry with us everywhere we go. It's tethered to our ankle and it holds on to us everywhere we go. So you can try, with a ball and chain, you can try to hide it. Like you can keep it behind your back so it's out of sight, out of mind. You can try to bury it in the sand. You can try to put it in a different room and you go in another room. Or you can try to hide it. But as soon as you try to make a move, as soon as you make a plan or dream a dream or set a goal, as soon as you try to move, the ball and chain just yanks on you. and holds you back and pulls you down. It's always there, tethered to you, holding on to you. And that's what debt does to us. It just holds us back and slows us down in life. Now, in light of all the awesome stuff that Paul said about us and our new life back in verses 1 through 11, the words we are debtors are rather jarring here. You'd think that Paul might say something like, in light of all that, we are free or, or we are forgiven. But he doesn't. He says, we are debtors. So then we are debtors. And so the first reality here is that we are in debt. There is a debt that we owe. Now in these verses, Paul never explicitly comes out and says what that debt is. But what he does do is explicitly say what that debt is not. And what he says is that we are not debtors to the flesh. Now flesh is one of Paul's favorite theological terms. And when he uses it, he's not talking about the stuff that covers your bones and organs. He's not talking about this stuff. This is not the flesh for Paul. By flesh, Paul means our sinful nature, our corrupted humanness, our fallen selves as we live in a fallen world. And apart from Christ, we are debtors to the flesh. We are held captive by the ball and chain of sin. It's always there, dragging us down, holding us back, keeping us from becoming and being everything that God created us to be. But what Paul says here, is that that chain tethering us to sin, it's been broken. We are free. We've been set free. And so we no longer, we're no longer debtors to the flesh. We're no longer tethered to that thing. We're not obligated to sin. We're not obligated to satisfy our sinful desires. Jesus has set us free from that ball and chain. We're not debtors to the flesh. So that's what our debt is not. But notice the contrast that comes next in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So even though we're no longer obligated to the flesh, there's still these two options that are in front of us. We can live by the Spirit, or even though we don't have to anymore, we can still choose to live according to the flesh. So it's like the ball and chain is still sitting there, gladly offering its its services to us. 
It will be happy to come back and latch onto us once again. And right here in verse 13, Paul makes it crystal clear that the choice we make on those two options, on whether we'll live by the spirit or live by the flesh, that choice is a matter of life and death. If we live by the flesh, we will die. But if by the spirit we kill the flesh, we will live. The flesh leads to death. The spirit leads to life. And Paul implies the choice is yours. How are you going to live? Now here's the deal. Even if you are a believer in Christ, and even if God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and even if you know all the stuff that we've talked about in Romans over the last couple months, and even if you're growing like a weed right now in your relationship with God, even if all of that is true about you, there's something else that is equally true about you. Sin is still very much your enemy. Sin is still very much your enemy. Because no matter how much you know or how mature you might be or how long you've walked with Jesus, your sinful nature is still there stalking you like a wild animal looking for an opportunity to devour you from the inside out. Sin wants to wreck you and wreck your life. And that's why nearly 400 years ago, the great pastor and theologian John Owen made this ever-relevant statement. He wrote, You must always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You must always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Our battle with the flesh is a matter of life and death. It's a big deal. But in real life, how often do we actually take it that seriously? I mean, what happens so often for so many of us, I think, is that rather than killing the predatory animal of sin, we try instead to tame it and keep it as a pet. So we don't go to war against our greed or our pride or our lust or our anger or our gossip or our whatever. Instead, we just try to take them out of the wild and domesticate them. So instead of blowing up at somebody at work, we just rage at our kids at home because our kids can't fire us. Or instead of uh, going to war against the greed and the pride and the lust in our lives, instead of, um, instead, of, uh, oh, instead of sleeping around, for example, instead of sleeping around, we secretly look at porn locked in our bedroom on a glowing rectangle at night where no one else knows about it. Or instead of loudly boasting about how we're better than others, telling the whole world, hey, I'm the man, I'm awesome, I'm great, instead of boasting about it, we silently cherish blissful thoughts of our own superiority. We just keep it to ourselves. We don't tell anybody, but we still think the same things. So we haven't killed those sins. We've just domesticated them. We've brought them home and turned them into our pets. But y'all, doing that is like this. A few years ago, a newspaper in Pennsylvania, it ran a story with this headline. Woman killed by pet bear named Teddy. All right, I'm not making this up. This is a true story. So what happened, this woman had brought home a little black bear when he was a little cub, just a little baby cub, cute little fuzzy thing. And she literally named him Teddy. And uh, what happened, over nine years, she raised him and there were no problems. Cute little Teddy grew up and no, no issues. But during that time, cute little Teddy grew from a little baby cub 
into a full-grown 350-pound black bear. And then one day, she went in to clean little Teddy's cage, and 350-pound little Teddy mauled her to death. Now, her neighbors were surprised by this development. One of them actually said, I would have never thought it was her own bear. Well, of course not. Like, you'd never think that a 350-pound bear would actually act like a 350-pound bear. Of course not. You should be surprised by that, right? But y'all, believers in Christ should never be surprised. Eventually, bears are going to do what bears do, even if you give them a cute name like Teddy. And eventually, sin is going to do what sin does, even if you try to turn it into your pet. You have to kill sin, or sin is eventually going to kill you. You need to go to war against your sin. And so the ball and chain that you've been set free from, it's this 350-pound bear known as sin. And now that that chain has been broken, you need to kill the bear. Whether it is your angry outbursts or your gossiping tongue or your greedy materialism or the lustful gazes or whatever your sin of choice, your pet sins are, whatever they are, you need to kill that thing before it kills you. And so the question this morning is how seriously are you taking the battle against sin? How seriously are you taking it? Now look at how Paul says we go about winning that battle in verse 13. He says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. And there are two things to recognize here. First, it is you who kill the bear. You are the active agent. So killing sin isn't something that God or anyone else just does automatically for you. You have to take action. You have to make choices to fight against sin and put it to death. If you don't do anything, sin won't die. Your anger, your lust, your pride, your greed, your unforgiveness, your bitterness. If you don't take action, your sin will live and grow and eventually it will maul you. So you have to kill the bear. But, and here's the second thing, you don't kill the bear on your own. Matt Chandler says that fighting sin on your own without the spirit of God is like open-handed slapping a bear. You can try it, you can try to fight that way, but I promise you it's not going to end well for you. But the good news for believers in Christ is that we don't have to fight that way. Look at the start of verse 13. You kill the bear by the Spirit. By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you if you're a believer in Christ. And that means that you've got the most powerful entity in the universe living in your life. He is in your corner. He's on your team. He's by your side. He's fighting for you and fighting with you. You don't have to fight alone. You see, on your own, when you go to fight against sin, you're kind of like Dr. Bruce Banner. You're this kind of weak little nerdy dude. But with the Holy Spirit, you become the incredible Hulk. You become the strongest person on the planet. See, a giant black bear is no match for Hulk. Hulk smashed that thing, right? And the bear of sin is no match for a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered believer in Christ. You have the power living in you. But y'all, that power, unlike with the Hulk, it's not activated by your anger or your rage or by any other emotion you have. 
It's not activated just by your motivation or by your fear or your, by your drive. No, it's activated differently. It's activated by your faith. You see, as, as you seek to fight this battle against sin, what God asks of you is not just to try harder, but it's actually to rely on him more, to depend on him, to follow his lead. And that's why verse 13 says it's by the Spirit you do it. And that's why verse 14 talks about those who are led by the Spirit. God wants you to depend on him and to fight with his power. So this is the debt we owe. It is not a debt to the flesh. It is not to keep the bear as a pet. It is not just to do what the world around us is doing all the time. But it is to buy the Spirit to put anger and lust and greed and pride and all that stuff to put it to death. To kill sin by the power of the Spirit before sin kills you. That is the debt we owe. Now here's the second reality in our text. It's the position we've received. The position we've received. In verses 14 through 17, Paul takes this issue of debt and he reframes the whole thing for us. He just told us explicitly that we're not debtors to the flesh, but now he begins to implicitly tell us what we are debtors to. Now, frequently in Romans so far, Paul has used the language of slavery to describe the human condition apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to the law. We are slaves to our flesh. And then in verse 15, Paul talks about the spirit of slavery. And when he does, he's referencing this mentality that so often characterizes the human condition apart from Christ. It's this mentality based largely on duty and obligation where you always have to perform in order to earn your place. So if you're good enough, if you perform well enough, then you'll be accepted. But if you fail, you'll be rejected and even punished. That's the spirit of slavery, that performance mentality. And Paul then links that spirit of slavery with falling into fear. Because when you live as a slave with that kind of mentality, you're always afraid that something bad is going to happen to you. You're always asking, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I proven myself? Did I offend someone? Did I, did I blow it? Am I going to wreck my life? Is, is he going to punish me? You see, the spirit of slavery produces fear in us. Fear of failure, fear of judgment, fear of not being good enough, fear of not making it. And when it comes to God, then it's like you're a slave and God is a cruel master. Or or you're an employee and God is an angry boss. Or you're a borrower and God is a relentless loan shark who's credited you in some way. And he's coming for you. But look at what Paul says in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are borrowers. All who are led by the Spirit are employees. All who are led by the Spirit are slaves. No. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15. You have not received the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And what that means, what all of that means is that God is not a relentless loan shark. God is not an angry boss. God is not a cruel master. God is a loving father. And believers in Christ are his kids. We are his children. That is the position we've received. Sons, children. 
Now let me make something clear here. When the text here says sons, it is not because Paul is leaving the women out. Sons is used intentionally because daughters in Paul's day did not have the same status as sons. See, daughters could not inherit property, but sons could. Daughters could not be full heirs of their fathers, but sons were. And so in saying that we are all sons, Paul is not excluding the daughters. He's actually elevating them to the same status as sons here. He's saying that all believers, male and female alike, all believers are children of God with all the rights and all the privileges of a son. This is the position we've received. Sons of God, children of God. That's who you are in Christ. And y'all, if we are children, that means that God is our loving father. Now this word father, it's maybe the most important word in this passage. And possibly even in the entire book of Romans and maybe even in the whole of the Bible. J.I. Packer says that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he does not understand Christianity very well. See, the word father is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among the philosophies and religions of the world. In no other tradition will you find such familial language. Like, for example, in atheism, we are cosmic orphans. There is no one and nothing out there beyond us. And so the universe certainly doesn't love us. Right? In Islam, God's literally got 99 names, but y'all, Father ain't one of them. And even in the Judaism, both in Jesus' day and in our own, Father is usually far too familiar a title to use for God. But for Christians, Father is the primary way that we address God. Though God is called Father just 15 times in the whole of the Old Testament, Father shows up over 165 times in the four Gospels alone. Jesus almost exclusively refers to God as Father. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, do you remember how he taught us to address God? Our Father. Christians know God as Father. That's who he is to us. And that's why Paul says in verse 15 that by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, when Paul uses Abba here, he's not talking about a Swedish pop group from the 70s. And he's certainly not trying to get a song like Dancing Queen stuck in your head. Sorry for whatever I just did to you there. But first century Jews like Jesus, they spoke the language of Aramaic. It was their primary language. And Abba is the Aramaic word for dad. And virtually every language in the world has a word like this for dad. In Aramaic, it's Abba. In English, Dada. In Spanish, Papa. In Indonesian, Bapa. In Turkish, Baba. And do you know where all of those words originate, where they come from? They come from the lips of little babies. Little babies, when they first start babbling, they instinctively come up with words like this for their dads. J.D. Greer says that it's like we come out of the womb looking for a perfect father who will love us and take care of us, who will give us perfect love and total security, who will be there for us and meet our deepest needs. It's like we're born knowing that we need someone like that in our lives. 
to that point, I, I, think about, I think about my own kids and the way that they look at me. When, when Trip Jet and, and Archer someday soon, when, he, when he's actually able to do this stuff, when they've got something exciting that they need to share, they come bouncing to me. When they have a toy that they can't reach on the top shelf, they come searching for me. When they have a bad dream in the middle of the night and they're afraid, and, and this actually happened last night. I couldn't have scripted it this way, but this actually happened last night. When they have a bad dream in the middle of the night and they're afraid. They walk across the hallway and they crawl into bed with me. And when they get hurt, which with three little boys happens pretty much every day. (laughs) When they get hurt, they cry out for me or for their mom. She's pretty great too. (laughs) But for help, for comfort, for security, for love, they cry out for their dad. It's like it's innate within them to look for that. And yet what I know all too well as I'm raising these boys is that as they grow up, there will be so many times, in fact, there have already been so many times where I will fail them. Times where I let them down, where I fall short, where I'm not the kind of father they need. And so despite whatever my kids are looking for from me, I know that I'll never be able to fully provide it. And anyone who has ever lived can testify to the universal nature of that reality. Every earthly dad any one of us has ever had has inevitably disappointed us at some point. Some dads walk out. Some dads never show up in the first place. Some dads make all kinds of promises they don't end up keeping. And even the best dads, even the very best ones, they fall short in all kinds of ways. They still let us down despite their best efforts. But what scripture tells us all throughout, and what Paul says here specifically in this text, is that God is the Abba Father that we need and for whom we're looking. To those of you who have been disappointed by your earthly dads, and that's all of us, hear this. There is a heavenly father who loves you with a perfect love. He always shows up. He never walks out. He keeps his promises every time. And he's he's always there. He longs to be there for you, to listen to you. And he alone is able to satisfy the longings of your soul. If you are a believer in Christ, then you have received a position in God's family as one of his kids. And you can cry out, Abba, Father, anytime you need to. You can crawl in bed with him when you're scared. You can run to him when you skin your knee. You can call on him when you can't reach that thing that you need. And you can always share your heart with him. The remedy for your fear and your weakness and your pain and your loneliness and whatever else is ailing you, the remedy for it is your Abba Father. He loves you and he will gladly be there for you whenever you cry out to him.
If you are a believer in Christ, you have a loving heavenly father. Never forget that. Never forget that. And dads in the room, listen to me. Your heavenly father has given you a tremendous opportunity and responsibility to be his representatives to your children. Those precious kids who lay their heads down to sleep in your home every night, God loves them with a ferocious love. And God has entrusted them to your care and given you the job of modeling his love and his care to them. You have so much power to shape their view of God for good or for ill for the rest of their lives. And that is not to put pressure on you, but it is to wake you up to what matters most in life. There are lots of men who could work your job or who could do your hobbies or who could stare at your iPhone. But there is only one man who can be a daddy to your kids. So please, for their sake and for your sake and for your spouse's sake, take your relationship with God seriously and take your relationship with your kids seriously. Model for them what it looks like to be a devoted, loving father. You are not going to get it perfect. You're going to mess up sometimes. But through the Holy Spirit who lives in you, you can do it well. If you failed up till now, start fresh today and make it your goal in life to give your kids a beautiful picture of what their heavenly father looks like. All right? Now there's one more word I want to zoom in on in verse 15. It's the word adoption. See, the way in which we become God's children is through adoption. He adopts us into his family. Now, sometimes when people think about adopted kids, they think that adopted kids are kind of junior varsity. Like they weren't born into the family, so they're kind of a lesser part of the family. But in the Bible and in the first century world where Paul wrote this letter, that notion could not be further from the truth. Adoption language is used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God's people. The nation of Israel was adopted by God to be God's unique son in the world. So of all the peoples in the world, all the different people groups in the world, God chose Israel uniquely to become part of his family. They were specially selected by him. And then in the first century Roman world where Paul wrote this letter, when a child was adopted, legally he or she received all the rights and all the privileges of any other natural child in the family. And frequently the way adoption played out in real life was that sons would be deliberately chosen by adoptive fathers expressly for the purpose of perpetuating the father's name and receiving the father's inheritance. Fathers would hand select an adopted son to become their heir. And because of this aspect of deliberate choice, often the adopted child would then enjoy a far more privileged position in the household and he'd receive far more of the father's affection and time than any of the natural children would. And so in ancient Rome, nearly every politically famous Roman family used the practice of adoption. In fact, in the year 44 BC, just a couple generations before Jesus was born, A man by the name of Gaius Octavius was adopted by none other than Julius Caesar to become his son and heir. And 17 years later, after taking the name Augustus Caesar, 
that adopted son ascended to the throne as the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Augustus was the first of nine Roman emperors who were adopted into positions of privilege. And each one of them was deliberately chosen, not for a lesser position in the family, but for a privileged position in the family. And y'all, when God adopts us, he chooses us not for a lesser position in the family, but for a privileged position in the family. He adopts us not to make us JV, but to make us full-fledged family members. Look at verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God chooses us for adoption to make us his heirs on the same level as Jesus himself. Now we'll talk more about this next week, but that means that in this life we get everything that Jesus gets, including the suffering. So the road to glory, it runs through the valley of suffering. We get the full family experience. But our status in the family, it also means that everything that Jesus stands to inherit for eternity, we stand to inherit for eternity. Eternal life, a place in God's forever kingdom, the riches of heaven, everlasting glory, all of it. That's how privileged our position as adopted children is. And notice what's central to the inheritance here. Look at the exact language Paul uses in verse 17. We are heirs of what? Heirs of God. At the very core of our inheritance is not all the stuff, but God himself. We don't just get nice stuff from a dead guy. The main thing we get is the true and living God. We get an everlasting relationship with our loving heavenly father. We get him. He is our greatest inheritance. So God adopts us for a privileged position in his family with him now and forever. And this, is, and this is one of the main reasons why Christians have always been passionate about adoption. Because we've been adopted, we love adoption. And here at Park Community Church, we love adoption so much that we literally have an adoption fund available to any member of the church to cover your adoption costs so that you can bring a privileged member into your family. If you didn't know about this and you're a member of the church here, you need to know about this. All right? We don't want finances to be a barrier to adoption for you. So if that's you today, if you're considering adoption in some way, shape, or form, please reach out to us about the adoption fund. And know that we as a church, we love adoption and we love you and we'd love to walk alongside you and help you add a privileged member to your family. We want, them, we want more and more kids to be able to grow up in families and households where they'll be able to get to know their Heavenly Father. We want to help you to do that. So please look up the Park Adoption Fund. Check it out and add some people to your family, some precious kids. And if you're here today and you were adopted as a child, or if you're a parent who's adopted a child of your own, know today that adoption does not make you junior varsity it makes you a full-fledged family member. Whether that's in an earthly family or whether it's in God's eternal heavenly family. Right? You're fully in. That is the position that we have received. I'll finish with this. You know, the reason all of this is possible, everything we've talked about, is because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. I said earlier that Jesus almost exclusively refers to God as Father. But the key word there is the word almost. 
There is one singular exception to that rule. The one time in all of Scripture where Jesus does not call God Father, it happens on the cross as Jesus hangs in agony and cries out, not Abba, Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, in that moment, for the first and only time in all eternity, Jesus' perfect relationship with the Father was broken. On the cross, in that moment, rather than tasting the love of God like he always had, Jesus drank the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's the answer to that question? Why did the Father forsake the Son? Well, as Paul puts it just a little later in Romans 8, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He did it for us. The father forsook the son so that we could be forgiven. The father gave up his son so that we could become his sons. Jesus paid the debt that our sins deserved so that we could have the inheritance that he deserved. Jesus suffered in our forsaken place so that we could have his privileged place. And for that reason... Now we don't have to be slaves who live in fear, but instead we can be children who cry out, Abba, Father. And so here's the bottom line today. We are debtors, but our debt is not a ball and chain that drags us down and holds us back. Our debt is actually a wind in our wings that lets us fly. It's a love in our hearts that gives us life. It is not the debt of a borrower to an unloving creditor. It is the debt of a grateful child to a loving parent. Our debt is not a debt of groveling. It is a debt of gratitude. A debt of gratitude to our great God who loves us with a never-ending, never-failing love. We owe everything to our loving Father who paid all our debts and adopted us into his family now and forever. That is the debt we owe. And it is a glorious debt. Bow your heads with me. With, uh, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, as the musicians start to play, I know there are some here today who do not know God yet as a loving heavenly father. And I just wanna speak to you for a moment. I want you to know today, if that's you, if you're visiting and you're just thinking about this God thing, I want you to know who this God is. And I want you to know that he loves you and he wants you to come into his family. He's offering you that adoption. The fee has already been paid. And all you've got to do is receive it. What he asks of you is not that you uh, pay him back or that you pay a fee, that you just do good stuff for him. No, what he asks of you is that you come to him and you embrace him as your father. So today, if that's you and you want to put your faith in Christ, I'd invite you to pray with me this prayer. Father, I thank you for paying the price for me through Jesus. I thank you for making it possible for my sin to be forgiven. Thank you for breaking the chain to the bear of sin. Thank you for offering me a place in your family. I receive that place. I put my faith in Christ. I receive him and I receive your Holy Spirit and I receive the new life that you're offering. And I thank you that I will be with you forever. If you just prayed that prayer, I'd invite you to come talk to someone after the service. Don't leave here today without, uh, without talking to someone about it. Let me pray for all of us as we, as we transition into worship now. Father, we praise you 
as our great, loving, heavenly Father. We praise you for all that you have done for us through Christ. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Pray for all the places, the the sin battles we're we're fighting, the bears that keep coming after us. I pray you'd help us in those fights that we would take seriously the battle against sin, not because uh, we have to do it to prove ourselves to you or anything like that, but because, because we want the life that you offer, the real life, the true life. And the road to life requires killing the sin in our lives. And I pray that we today, we would be reminded of your great love for us. Thank you that you do love us with an everlasting love. Help us to experience that love in a fresh way today. Thank you for being our loving heavenly father. We worship you today in Jesus' name, amen.